Welcome to tape number eight of the series, What We Catholics Believe. In this tape, I'm going to talk about the Church and the Bible. I've put these two important aspects together, Church and Bible, because even though each one is so important, they are so closely entwined with each other, that I can only really do them justice by treating them both at the same time. As the Second Vatican Council reaffirmed in Dei Verbum, Section 9, <clears throat> sacred tradition, that is church teaching, and sacred scripture are bound closely together, and each communicates with the other. For both of them flow from the same divine wellspring. And as we will see in the tape, we are going to find the scriptures establishing why we have a church and that we have a church. And we are going to find the church establishing exactly what comprises Holy Scripture. But first I'd like to explain why we need a church, why it's absolutely essential. There are three main reasons. And the first one I want to talk about is that we need the church to teach us the truth the truths that God wants us to know about him, about ourselves, and about how we are to live. If we had been alive in the Holy Land when Jesus was on earth, we could have listened to him teaching. But we weren't there, and that's no fault of ours. So he has founded a church to continue giving that teaching and to give it consistently to each generation until the end of the world. In the New Testament we see him doing exactly that, choosing twelve men, the twelve apostles, who gave up their jobs and spent all their time travelling with him, listening to all he was saying, seeing his miracles, and particularly witnessing his resurrection. We see him training them to continue his teaching by explaining the parables, by listening to their questions in the evening when the others had gone home. And then, just before Jesus' ascension, his very last words on earth, we see him speaking to them and saying, very solemnly, all authority is given me in heaven and on earth. Going therefore, teach all nations everything I have commanded, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And behold, I am with you all days, even till the end of the world. And when he'd said that, Jesus rose into heaven. He didn't say to the apostles, Go and write accounts of what I've said. After all, he knew that printing was not going to be discovered for 15 centuries, and that until then, the vast majority of people would remain illiterate, unable to read. But they could all listen. So he said, go and teach. Yes, two of the apostles, St Matthew and St John, were inspired to write accounts of his life. And so were two disciples, St. Luke and St. Mark. 
And we must thank God that they were. Because those accounts are very inspiring to us. And they bring us very close to our Lord. But even they never claimed that their accounts were exhaustive. St. Luke, for instance, at the near the beginning of his Gospel, in the fourth verse of the first chapter, writes that he's, he's, <laughs> tells us that he's writing this down so as to confirm, to explain the truths in which you have been instructed. He expected his readers to already been taught verbally the truths. And St. John, towards the end of his Gospel, in the 20th chapter, admits there are many other things that Jesus did that are not in this book and that could not be written down because all the books in the world could not contain them. But these are written that you may believe and believing may have life in him. So that's the form the church took, a teaching church. And the other thing we see in the New Testament is that Jesus arranged his church as a hierarchy, not a democracy. From the very beginning, he chose a leader among the apostles. He chose St. Peter. As soon as he met him, he greeted him as Simon Bar-Jonah. And then he changed his name to Cephas, which means rock. It's translated for us as Peter, which also means rock. Um, it's not so obvious in English, but we do talk about petrified forest, trees which have become fossils and are like rocks. So he made Peter's name Rock. Peter is always listed first in any list of the apostles, and it was Peter's boat that Jesus would choose to teach from. And of course, his appointment as leader was made very definite when they went to visit Caesarea Philippi. And this is described in St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16. Jesus said to the apostles, Who do people say that I am? And they came up with all sorts of answers. Some say, Isaiah returned. Some say, St. John the Baptist come back to life. Some say, Jeremiah. Or any of the other prophets. And then he said to them, Who do you say that I am? And they fell silent because they weren't sure or they weren't sure enough to put it into words. And as usual, when they didn't know what to say, Peter spoke up. Thou the Christ, the Son of the living God, he said. And Jesus was very pleased with him. Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, he said, because flesh and blood have not revealed that to you but my Father in heaven. And to you I say, Thou art Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And to you I will give the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth, it will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth, it will be loosed in heaven. It's like a great crescendo, really. I'm going to build my church on you. 
and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. And the keys of the kingdom of heaven, which was a tremendous gift, keys meant a great deal to the Jews. And then, the most astonishing promise of all, whatever you bind will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose will be loosed in heaven. And this amazing gift, responsibility, was confirmed by Jesus later, after his resurrection. And I think this was done deliberately, because in the interim, when Jesus was captured and taken for trial, like all the other apostles, Peter was absolutely shattered, frightened. And when somebody said to him, but you're one of his friends, Peter denied Jesus. Three times he denied knowing him, out of fear. Afterwards he repented, was very contrite. Now the apostles would have known this. And so after his resurrection, when he met them by the side of the Sea of Galilee, <clears throat> one morning, and they had breakfast together, he deliberately said to St. Peter in front of the other apostles, Simon Barjona, lovest thou me? And Jesus answered, Yes, Lord, I love you. Then feed my lambs, he said. And then again, Simon, son of Jonah, lovest thou me? And St. Peter said, Yes, Lord, I do, I love you. Feed my young sheep. And the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, lovest thou me? And St. Peter, by now getting very worried, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. Feed my sheep. Three times Peter announced he loved the Lord, <coughs> which made up for the three times denial. And three times the Lord gave his flock into Peter's care, which reinstated him, if anyone had had any doubts, as definitely the leader of the apostles. So the apostles recognised, the other apostles recognised he was their leader. And in the Acts, we see them accepting that, and expecting Peter to act as leader once Jesus had ascended into heaven. One of the first things he did was to organise the choosing of the successor to Judas. He chose the two names, Barnabas and Matthias, and how lots would be drawn, and of course Matthias was chosen. Again, it was St. Peter who had to make the very difficult decision about receiving Gentiles into the church. At first, the apostles were uncertain whether these Gentiles should be turned into Jews, first of all. Should the men be circumcised? Should they start keeping the Jewish laws, which were very intricate? Or should they just baptize them and go on from there? St. Peter received a vision and held the council, the first council of the church, the council of Jerusalem, and announced that it was perfectly right, the Lord's will, to receive Gentiles just with baptism. And from then on, that was the teaching of the church. So we see Peter in charge, and after Peter's death, after his martyrdom in Rome, we see his successors in charge as they have been ever since. Very soon after St. Peter's death, there was trouble with the church for the converts in Corinth. 
Now, at this time, St. John the Apostle was still alive, living in Ephesus. But the church leaders didn't turn to him to sort things out, although he was an apostle. They turned to the Pope in Rome, who was not St. Peter, but one of his successors, Anacletus. And he made the decision. His letters didn't existence. And that's how it's been ever since. The Pope is the leader of the church on earth, representing Christ. When there's any query, he is the one we have to turn to, to make the decisions. Right down to the present day. In one of the Vatican II documents, Lumen Gentium, it says, When the Roman pontiff defines a doctrine, all are bound to submit just as the Apostles did. Now this was a tremendous responsibility to put on Peter's shoulders and to put on the Pope's shoulders. And indeed, it was a big responsibility for all the Apostles, twelve ordinary working men who were told to convert the whole world. But Christ had promised that he would be with his church all days, consistently, continuously, until the end of the world. And also, at the Last Supper, he promised to send another paraclete, the Spirit of Truth, who will abide with you forever. And this other paraclete is God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Blessed Trinity, who came to the Apostles at Pentecost, 50 days after the Resurrection. And that was when the Apostles started teaching. From that day, that is the birthday of the Church. And the Church has continued ever since. You can pick any time in history, you'll find the Catholic Church there. Teaching and doing the other two great functions that the Church was founded for. Dispensing grace and offering the Holy Sacrifice at the Mass. The grace is just as essential as the truth if we're to reach heaven. And the church gives it to us through the sacraments, through baptism, through all the sacraments, which are passed on from one generation to the next. And the offering of the holy sacrifice at the Mass, the sacrifice that has taken the place of the temple sacrifices, is the third essential function of the church. This is the continuous sacrifice of Calvary. It's the way that um, our blessed Lord offers himself to God the Father now through the holy sacrifice of the Mass. So that's what we see the Church doing, mainly. Of course, it does other things. It's also a very good, as it were, a welfare organisation runs clinics and hospitals, looks after the sick and the dying, runs schools to instruct children. It's a way for people to know each other, helps people to be less lonely, to meet each other, to make friends and also to meet husbands and wives. But those are secondary to the function of teaching, dispensing grace and offering the sacrifice at the Mass. The church is doing what Jesus did when he was on earth. 
The teaching is giving the grace, the grace of forgiveness, and is offering sacrifice as he offered himself on Calvary. So where does the Bible come in? Well, I've been using the Bible to show how the church was formed, how it grew. And as Vatican II says again, also in Dei Verbum, sacred scripture is the speech of God as put down under the breath of the Holy Spirit. The church and the Bible support and illumine each other. And just as the Bible shows us the church growing, the church defined which books of the Bible we are to accept as divine scripture. There was a lot of confusion about the scrolls, and they were just scrolls, remember, in existence in the early centuries. There were twelve Gospels, for instance, and various versions of books from the Old Testament. So in 382, the Pope, Pope St. Damasus I, called a Council of Rome to investigate the Scriptures, to define once and for all which was the inspired Word of God and which was not, which were apocryphal. And he commissioned St. Jerome, who was young at the time, but a well-known scholar, to translate the canon of scripture, that means the scripture that was defined as genuine, into Latin. Some of it was in Hebrew before, some of it was in Greek, which meant it wasn't available to all scholars. They couldn't all read Greek, and they certainly not all could read both Greek and Hebrew. But anyone who could read at that time could read Latin. It was a universal language. And so St. Jerome had the tremendous task of putting the Bible into Latin, the Vulgate, as it was called, the vulgar tongue of the time, the usual tongue. It took him a lifetime. He lived in a room in Jerusalem, which you can still visit. He lived there deliberately, so he could examine the books of the Old Testament at source and discuss them with Jewish scholars and rabbis. And he just dedicated his life to it. It was a tremendous task. When it was completed, there was just one copy of the Bible in the world, the one he had worked on. So immediately, he had to divide it into sections and take it to various monasteries so the monks in the monasteries could start copying it so that it could spread throughout the world. And that's what went on. For the next 12 centuries, there were monks all over Europe who dedicated their lives to copying pages from the Bible so that people in churches, in Catholic churches, in other monasteries, families who were perhaps noble enough to have been taught to read could have their own copy of the Bible. That's why we have the Bible today, out of those centuries of work. I sometimes wonder if non-Catholics who complain that Catholics don't value the Bible realise the work that went into preserving the Bible 
Well, it is thanks to the Catholic Church they have it at all. Recently I heard two Northern Irish people speaking on the radio. The non-Catholic said to the Catholic, you believe what the Pope in Rome says. I believe in the Bible. Now you can't talk like that. There's no difference. The Pope in Rome says what's in the Bible. And the Bible endorses the Pope in Rome and his authority. The difference, I think, between us, Catholics and Protestants, on the Bible is that we believe, as Dave Verbum, section 10, says, that on Scripture, the task of giving an authentic interpretation of the Word of God has been entrusted to the living, teaching office of the Church alone. And the alone is important who speaks with the authority of Jesus Christ. And though this magisterium, this teaching authority, is not superior to the word of God, but its servant, in that it teaches only what has been handed on to it. So we rely on the interpretation of the Bible by the church, who alone has the authority to interpret it. Now, people who are not Catholics and don't accept the Catholic Church's authority interpret the Bible for themselves, and they quite likely interpret it correctly. But they might not. They can't be certain. And this is what happened when Luther broke away from the Church and insisted that there was Scripture only. Sola Scriptura, as he said. Only Scripture. No authoritative Church. Just take the Bible and read it. Now that was a very startling claim to make. And I can't help wondering where his authority for it was. You wouldn't find it in the early fathers. You certainly don't find it in the Bible itself. As I said, St. Luke and St. John both say that the complete teaching is not contained in their Gospel. And St. Paul, writing to Timothy, says specifically, the church is the pillar and ground of truth. Not the Bible, the church. But Luther insisted, sola scriptura. And he made his own interpretations. But of course it didn't stop with him. Even during his lifetime, other people had followed him and made their own interpretations, which he wasn't pleased about. It was bound to happen. And that's gone on ever since. So now there are tens of thousands of Protestant bodies interpreting various texts in different ways. All very sincere, but obviously not all true. And that shows the need for a church. It also shows you need to know how to look for the true church so many bodies claiming to be the church how do we know which is the church well there are four marks that we can pick out that fit it in the early days in the scripture and in the acts of the apostles and if we look for those four marks and find the church that still has them then we recognize the true church the four marks are first of all that it's one 
believes one faith, one set of truths. It has one sacrifice, sacrifice of the Mass, under one head. Jesus, the head of the church, and the Pope, his head on earth. The second one is that it's holy. Now that sounds a very big claim. I'm not claiming that all Catholics are saints all the time. They're obviously not, and history can show us they're not. I'm claiming that the teaching is holy, because it's Christ's teaching. And obviously, any Catholic who follows it perfectly will become holy. And we have had, at every stage in history, extremely holy saints who have followed our Lord's teaching. So the Church is one, the Church is holy. The Church is Catholic. That means universal. And you won't find the word Catholic in the New Testament because it's a Greek word and Jesus didn't speak Greek. But you do find the concept of Catholic, particularly in his last words on earth when he says, All authority is given me. Going therefore, teach all nations. That's Catholic. All whole world has got to be taught. Teach them to observe all the things I have commanded you, the complete teaching, not part of it. And behold, I am with you all days, that's continuously, even till the end of the world. That's the definition of Catholic, without actually using the word. So you've got to look for a church that fits all those criteria, gives the complete teaching, teaches the whole of the world, it's not one teaching for one country and another for another. One truth for everybody. And the last, the fourth sign is the church has got to be apostolic. It was started, built on the apostles. It's always got to go straight back to the apostles. There can't be a break. And that's what you'll find in the Catholic Church. Our bishops have the power to ordain and to offer Mass <clears throat> because they were given that power by bishops who were given that power by bishops and you can go back like that one generation after the next until you get the bishops who were given that power by the apostles who were given it by Christ. And that has happened down history without a break. So the Catholic Church is the apostolic church it didn't start 15 centuries later or any other time. It started with the apostles that Christ built his church on. And it's continued constantly ever since. This is a magnificent thing. There's no other organization that has followed so exactly to a pattern for so long. From the time of the Roman Empire, this church has been in existence recognisably the same. So that Catholics who lived a thousand years ago, if they returned, would recognise the teaching, would recognise the sacraments and the Mass. You sometimes hear people say, I love Jesus, but I don't like the church. Or, as they often put it, the institutional church which makes it sound something rather disagreeable. Now you can't say that 
If you love Jesus, you love his church. You have no alternative because Jesus is the church. The church is his voice in the church, in the world now. And he made that very clear even after his ascension into heaven. You remember how St. Paul, before he was converted, was called Saul. And how he went about persecuting the first Catholics. Believing he was doing the will of God. How although he lived in Jerusalem, he obtained permission to go to Damascus. To catch some more because he would understood that there were Christians there as well. But on his way to Damascus, and he was riding ahead of his friends, he was so eager to get there, something very strange happened. He was knocked from his horse, and there was a blinding flash of light. And you can read about this in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 9. And then he hears a voice thunder down from heaven. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not why are you persecuting my church or my people or my friends, but why are you persecuting me? And poor soul, flat on the floor, said, Who are you? Very puzzled. And the voice spoke again. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So by persecuting the church, Saul was persecuting Jesus. He identifies himself exactly with the church. Church is Jesus. Poor soul asked very timidly, What shall I do, Lord? Go to Damascus. And there you will be taught the truth. And of course he was led to Damascus. And he was taught the truth. And became a great missionary for the church. And in his epistles, we find this truth about Jesus being the church brought out again and again. He describes it as a body of Christ living on in the world. The mystical body of Christ. He describes us as all belonging to this one body. Different parts of a body. Because we're part of the church and the church is Christ. So anyone who says, oh I love Jesus but I, I don't have much time for the institutional church, is contradicting themselves. They love Jesus, they love the church because the church is Jesus. The church was defined very thoroughly by the Council of Trent and this definition was confirmed by the Second Vatican Council. It consists of all of us who are united by a profession of the same faith, that is, believe the same truths, by participation of and in the same sacraments, under the direction of the same lawful pastors, especially the representative of Christ on earth, the Bishop of Rome, the Pope. It's a tremendous privilege to belong to the mystical body of Christ. To be a member of Christ himself, to be that close to him. And it means, of course, that we're living in him, he's living in us. We have a share of his life, the grace that makes up his, his life, his supernatural life. It means, too, 
that we benefit in every Mass which is offered throughout the world. And it means, of course, that when we die, we belong to Christ, we go to him in heaven. Some people say it's a difficult church to live in. That's because the teachings can be very hard. You might have to make some self-sacrifice if you're going to follow them and deny yourself. But it's a wonderful church to die in. And that's true. And that is what's really important. Because then, you already belong to Christ. You die in Christ. You are with him in the next world. Now I've covered briefly but perhaps the main elements of what we Catholics believe about the Church and about the Bible. I'd like to end, as usual, with a mystery of the Holy Rosary. And this time, it's the second sorrowful mystery of the Rosary, the scourging at the pillar. You remember that after Jesus had been apprehended in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was brought before Herod and the Sandrinin and Pilate. And reluctantly, because the crowd demanded it so fiercely, Pilate agreed to have him crucified, and before the crucifixion, to be scourged. When he heard the sentence, Jesus must have realized, as any Jew living at that time would know, that this was a terrible, savage scourging he was going to receive. He didn't protest, he didn't try and defend himself as he could have done. A section of soldiers were detailed off to march him down to the flagellation room, to strip him of his outer garments and to secure his hands to a pillar. And then they left him except for the three who were detailed to carry out the scourging. Two who did the actual scourging and one who had to supervise and watch and it was his responsibility to make sure the scourging didn't go on too long, that Jesus didn't die under it. Because people did die under these savage scourgings, and Jesus was meant to die on the cross. The children's shroud, which bears the marks of this scourging, seems to indicate that one of the men was much taller than the other, and the way the blows were dealt. But one stood on one side, one on the other. And Jesus was scourged with leather thongs which divided at the end into metal dumbbells. So every blow was three blows on him. And of course these metal, these sharp metal pieces, very soon broke the skin and drew blood. And he would have been standing in a while in a pool of his own blood. He bore it all meekly. I sometimes wonder the fact that he was quiet and didn't protest made them scourge even harder to try and get some reaction. But eventually, the supervising soldier stopped the scourging. Jesus' hands were cut down from the pillar and he was allowed to sit. And doctors tell us he would have been in deep shock. And the other soldiers who'd been awake came back. So that's what we think about while we say the Our Father, ten Hail Marys and glory be. 
the sufferings our Lord endured for our sake make it possible for us to get to heaven. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. O my Jesus, forgive us our sins, and save us from the fires of hell. Lead all souls to heaven, especially those in most need of thy mercy. Thank you very much for listening to me again. The next tape is going to be about what Catholics believe about prayer. Hope you'll be able to join me there too. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. May God bless you all.